Open up your Bibles to Genesis 46. Genesis chapter 46. I've entitled this uh, outline, And God Spake Unto Israel. Uh, and we'll discuss the significance of that after we get into it. But we'll read just the first seven verses of Genesis 46 to get us started. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God said unto Israel in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt. For I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to him, uh, had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. And we'll, in the remaining verses, get into that uh, particular number, but the number is going to equal 70, just to spoil it just a little bit. It's an interesting thing to consider that the Lord couldn't have told Jacob this 20 chapters ago. Uh, and I don't say that to mean the Lord didn't know. I say that to mean that there's some intentionality between behind when the Lord reveals and tells us certain things. There's a necessity to God's people to pace themselves behind the will of God. If God had said, for example, get thee out of Laban's house, get down to Canaan for a spell, and then I'll take you to Egypt. Well, I mean, Esau is in the way of all that. Certainly Jacob and his old man Jacob form would have said, well, I'm just going to go to Egypt. If I'm going to end up there anyway, any of us in the room would probably say that. I'm going to end up in Tulsa anyway. Why go through temperance and Mantachi to get there? I'll just go to Tulsa. But there's a lot of things that had to happen along the way to get Jacob to the Israel, to get Jacob to be who Jacob was required by God to be. So there's a lot here concerning pacing. And, and I don't know, uh, there's not a whole lot of commentators who discuss this transition when the chapter begins with the writer talking about Jacob being Israel. And the Lord begins with calling him Jacob, except for the fact that, as I mentioned, Jacob hasn't talked to the Lord a whole lot, uh, really throughout his existence in the Bible thus far, but certainly over the last few chapters since Joseph came up missing and was uh, surely rent to pieces, remember that was the thought process that Jacob had, he hadn't done a whole lot in beseeching of the Lord that was at least chronicled in the book of Genesis, except for before the boys went back and took Benjamin with them. When he referred to him as El Shaddai, the superior, the supreme God, uh, the creator of all these things, this is the first time he made a reference to him, which gives us the idea that he may uh, once again be talking to him. He was inconsolable at the idea that Joseph had died, and he was in mourning and not, uh, not able to be comforted, according to Scripture, by any in the family uh, at that time. So some things to, to remember here is that Canaan, where he's being called now to leave, was the land God had promised unto Abraham and Isaac. And the last time that Jacob uh, heard from God in this manner, uh, through, through spoken through visions, 
It was to get him there. Uh, specifically, the very last time was after the Shechemite ordeal, the massacre of the Shechemites, when the Lord had to remove him from that area for a spell, and it was just before Rachel had died. But previous to that, it was get out of Laban's area and get to the promised land, get to the land of your fathers, the land which I had promised to Abraham and I had promised to Isaac, your father. <coughs> it was confirmed to Israel by his father that this was the land of promise. That question still comes up today. But this, Isaac said unto Jacob, is the land of promise that God had promised to his nation way back with Abraham. This was the land. And before Abraham, God knew this would be the land and that they would be his chosen people. Every important move Jacob had to make in his life was preceded by God speaking to him directly. When he left his parents to go to Herod, God had appeared to him at Bethel. Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15 reads as follows. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now before I read the rest of it, he is telling him there, before he'd return to Canaan, that this is the land where you will raise seed. This is the promised land. I will establish you here. This is before he goes to Laban, way back when. It goes on, and behold, I am with thee, the Lord says, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And there is revealed providence. The Lord knew there were going to be places that Jacob had to go. And will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken thee of. Is this that moment? No, because his people are coming back. They're all going into Egypt now, and a few generations later, a few hundred years later, Jacob will be brought back at his death. But the nation of Israel, through the great exodus, will leave Egypt once again for the promised land. That's what the Lord's referring to here. When he had been with Laban long enough, God instructed him to return to Canaan in Genesis 31, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. When it was time he left Shechem, God appeared once again to him in Genesis 35, verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. He didn't say move there, he said dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother, which was back there in chapter 28 that we just read. In Genesis 35, a few verses down, verses 9 through 12, we read the following. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram, and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I, have, uh, which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee, I will give it, and to thy seed after thee, Will I give the land? Again, promises that Jacob wouldn't have necessarily understood. Uh, if it were for Jacob's understanding, the Lord would have just simply said, I will give it. I will give it the land. But he says, to thy seed, after thee will I give the land. And this is confirmation that where they're going now into Egypt 
if Jacob were to call back on these specific promises of the Lord God, did he change his mind? God forbid. Did he change the promise? God forbid. But we're called to leave by God's own word, by his own voice. What does this mean? Are those promises null and void? God forbid. He's still going to give your seed the land. And even today, as there's turmoil and strife continuously over whose land that is, God's promise isn't changing. That's his people's land. This journey began without the sovereign encouragement that he had come to know so well. If you look back at the end of the previous chapter, he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. This was before the Lord spoke to him. He actually leaves that place and goes to the altar at Beersheba and then hears from the Lord. He had to come out from this place where he had been mourning. He had to come out from this place where he had gotten so comfortable over at least the last 20 or so years. He had to come out from there and return to the place where he knew the Lord was. He had to meet him there before he would hear the voice of the Lord. Whatever strife, whatever turmoil, whatever ugly has got us down tonight, and there's enough of it to go around, don't leave empty-handed. We have to return to the place in which we know the Lord had once spoken unto us if we long to hear Him speak to us once again. Not here. Not here, but here. Write that down. We're going to need it. I'm going to need you to remind me. The text says that Israel took his journey and on his way he stopped at the old altar at Beersheba where he had lived with his father back in Genesis 28, verse 10. Beersheba was near the southern boundary of the land and would essentially represent a point of no return for his journey to Egypt. Israel had no commandment to not go and nothing commanding him to stay. Surely God was able to end the famine in Canaan if he so desired to do. And with the opportunity to follow his sons before him, by multiple acts that would have certainly seemed as miracles of his Jehovah, all Israel could do was to pray and honor God along the way, which is why he stops at this altar. He had to trust that, he would, that the Lord would close this door if it wasn't what he was intended to do. And we have to do the same. the opportunity to follow before him in a, in a heart and a mind for prayer. We have to ask, does the option before me conflict with the word of God? Does it dishonor God in any way? Then as we talked on Sunday, the only thing left to do is pray, pray, pray without fainting, acting in faith. Most assuredly, Israel then was greatly comforted in our text to receive confirmation after going to the altar that he was indeed to go down to Egypt. This was the eighth and last time, at least for what has been recorded in the Bible, that God does so. Genesis 28, 13, 31, 3. Uh, if you're following in your outline, I'm on the top of the back of the first page. Uh, there's a multitude of other times in which the Lord spoke to him, but this is the last. Here in verse 4, the Lord says that he would surely bring thee up again from Egypt. This will be accomplished literally and physically after his death. He gives that as his dying request in Genesis 49. And you can turn there if you will. We'll, we'll talk more about it when we get there. But now we're going ahead in Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 29 and 30. And Jacob charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. 
which is before Mamre, and the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession and of a burying place. And I think this was in a chapter that I taught on last spring before I got here. So when we get to Genesis 49, we'll do a little bit of backtracking and discuss uh, that particular purchase and its connection to all these things. So that was when he gave the command or the charge to handle him in that way when he passed. In Genesis 50, verses 4 through 8, we see it literally accomplished. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die in my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan. There shalt thou bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father, according as he, had, as he made thee swear. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the house of Joseph, and his brethren, and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. It's very significant that so many went to that funeral, but again, we'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 50, Lord willing, or we'll be called up in the rapture, and he'll just tell us there. This too was promised unto Israel when God told him that Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes, which is in this chapter. The Lord tells Jacob this will happen. Joseph will be there. He will administer this. He will answer the charge that you will give him. Now when Jacob first brought his family into Canaan, there was a great concern over the assimilation with the local tribes and perhaps contamination of those religions. Uh, remember the defiling of Dinah. Uh, when Jacob's uh, decision to basically just let it, let's see what happens, uh, didn't go well for the Shechemites or for Dinah. In Egypt, that would not be the case, as Egyptians felt themselves superior to other races and were very reluctant to mix and intermarry with foreigners, especially shepherds, which makes it all the more significant that in Genesis 50, some of them would go to this funeral or to this grave service. We've seen evidence of this already. Genesis 43, verse 32 when we read, and they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves. This was the dinner that Joseph had at his home for his, his brethren before he revealed himself to them. He ate by himself and them by they, themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with Hebrews. But that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. We're going to see it again in verses 33 and 34 of this chapter. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, this is Joseph speaking to them, his brethren and his father, He'll, they'll say unto you, What is your occupation? And ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth, even until now, both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. It's interesting that their superstitions and their prejudice were so set against the Hebrews, even though it might not have been particularly established to be set against the Hebrews, it automatically was. Interesting. So with these things in mind, we can see how it is that God was establishing a nation within a nation. They weren't going to uh, crossbreed and intermingle and lose themselves to Egyptian tradition and, and heritage and all, so to speak. They were going to literally be incubated as a nation inside of a nation. On a 900 square mile plot called Goshen, or Draw Near, they were going to be preserved and left alone for a period of time. They were going to exist as another nation 
inside the borders of another nation. I'm not the greatest historian in the room, but I don't know that that's ever happened again in the history of man. It's quite astonishing. They would not conform to Egypt as they were brought in and preserved in their own land. They were benefiting from the fat of Egypt, but they were not going to become Egypt. They didn't change to Egyptians like we would expect those moving into our country to become Americans. So that doesn't happen all the time either. And maybe it is happening again in the history of men. Their lineage was preserved as Egyptians were not likely to marry with them and their social status was preserved as Egyptians were not soon to take on the role of shepherd in the community. Since first, becoming, uh, since first coming upon Abraham in the book of Genesis, this has truly been a unique characteristic of God's chosen nation. They were to be his unmistakably wherever they went. Abraham and Isaac learned they weren't, to, they weren't permitted to go in and just lie to foreign nations when they went in there. They were to be unashamed of God. They were to go in as representatives of God's people every single time. And then the rest of what we're going to cover today is the real exciting stuff, the list of the names of those going in with Jacob. And before we get into it, we should acknowledge that not every name covered here is physically going into the nation of Egypt. I know that sounds like a misnomer, sounds really weird. You'll start to see it as we go, and I'll try to point it out. This is specifically dealing with Jacob's lineage, most likely at his death. It's recognized that as a nation inside of another nation, they all came out with Jacob. So here we go. Verse 8. And these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And if you're looking at the outline, it's, it's charted. If you turn the page, you'll see it. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok and Falu, and Hezron and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and uh, I didn't practice any of these names, and it's going to be revealed here pretty quick, so I'll just let you know it's about to get fun. Uh, Jamin and Ohad, and Jacob, and Zohar, and Shaul, uh, the son of the Canaanite, uh, Canaanitish woman. This is just basically signifying that the other wives uh, might have been descendants of Ishmael, or descendants of Esau, or possibly of, uh, of Keturah. And the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, which uh, there's some significance there. If you look at the chart, I... I Use an asterisk and a plus sign and a carrot to signify some very particular things. Uh, from Levi's line, Kohath is where we're going to find Moses coming out of. The next line that's listed here, find my place, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and uh, Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. So we already start to see the first evidence that not all of them are physically coming out of Canaan to go into Egypt. But they are noted here, and so they are also on our list. And the sons of Pharez were Hezron and Hamuel. And then you see a couple more asterisks here. The star next to Ur and Onan on the chart, because they died in Canaan. Pharez has a plus sign, or a cross, because this is the sacred line in which the Lord Jesus Christ will come. The sons of um, Issachar, Tola, and Fuva, and Job and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered and Elon, and Jalil. These be the sons of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob and Padanaram, with his daughter Dinah. All the souls of his sons and his daughters were thirty and three. 
Uh, and you can see that count there on the chart in the outline. These names total 31. However, Ur and Onan died in Canaan, leaving only 29 of Leah's sons and grandsons who went to Egypt. Presumably, therefore, Leah also had four daughters or granddaughters, making a total of 33, according to what we read there in verse 15. And again, it's pretty significant of, these, of this original list, just how many other future names we're going to see as soon as we get into Exodus, really, uh, coming out of that line. Hezron and Hamuel, the sons of Perez, are listed here as well, but they're not likely born yet. If you recall that chapter that we spent on Judah, uh, Perez is very young at this point to also have two sons of his own. So they're also not physically coming out of Canaan because they're probably not born yet. It is likely uh, that they're recorded here to signify the, the lineage in which the Lord Jesus was going to come from. Uh, so I didn't include it in the chart, but just so you know, as it says there in the outline, Hezron is the son of Perez in which the Lord Jesus will eventually come. Verses 16, 17, and 18, the sons of Gad, uh, Ziphian, and Haggai, uh, or Haggai, and Shunai, and Esben, Eri, and Arodi, and Arilai. The sons of Asher, Jimna and Ashua, and Asui, and Berea, and Sirah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, uh, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bare unto Jacob, even sixteen souls. I didn't put a, a whole lot of side notes in here, but understand again, Zilpah being a handmaid. That's who they're referencing here. 13 names in this chart, plus Sira, daughter of Asher, and two sons uh, of Berea, Heber, and Malkiel are listed in our text as well. Genesis 46, verses 19 through 22. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. Two most normal names in the list for which I am most thankful. And unto jo in case you're thinking, I can't wait till he's done preaching so I can straighten him out. Please don't. Uh, just don't. It's not fun for anybody. And unto Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, who we've already seen quite a bit of, which uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And the sons of Benjamin were Belah and uh, Becher and Ashbel and Gera and Naaman and Ehi and Rosh and Mupam and Hupam. Those are probably my favorites. And Ard. I don't know how Ard follows Mupam and Hoopam, but there he is. I like to think Mupam and Hoopam's twins. Uh, Becca and I grew very, very close when uh, she was finishing school at Kent State, and I was living in South Carolina for work, and we would call one another and do Bible study, and we'd get to these chapters, and I don't, she had to have looked ahead because it was always my turn to read. And uh, yeah, she learned then I can't pronounce anything, English or not. These are the sons of Rachel, which were born to Jacob. All the souls were 14. Verses, uh, and then again, that chart is on the back page of the outline. And again, hang on to these, because as we get into Exodus and Leviticus, I'll remind you of them, but you got a real convenient chart right here as we start to see some of the tribes. Uh, specifically, for example, who's permitted to touch the altar uh, and who's not. Uh, that's already in one of the charts we've talked about. Verse 23, 24, and 25 of this chapter, and that's where we'll, uh, we'll get our last of our lists here. The sons of Dan, Husham. Thank you, Dan. The sons of Naphtali, uh, Jaziel, and Gunai, and Jezer, and Shelem. 
These are the sons of Bilhah, which Laban gave unto Rachel, uh, his daughter, and she bare these unto Jacob. All the souls were seven. So again, uh, Bilhah is a handmaid. Uh, and you can go back into Genesis and find where all of this first happened. Uh, interesting, interesting read, um, but uh, read nonetheless for your own personal study because we've taught through that already. So the last few verses I want to deal with before we close, verse 26 and 27, read as follows. All the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins, and this is where we start to get the parameters of who's on it and who's not, uh, and it may seem extremely helpful, but you'll see in just a moment. Uh, besides Jacob's son's wives, so no, his daughter-in-laws are not included, all the souls were threescore and six. Sixty-six. And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls, also two souls that did not go from Canaan to Egypt, because they're already in Egypt. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten, and now we're at seventy. So of the 70 names above, as I mentioned, not all the 70 uh, were to make the journey to Egypt from Canaan. Joseph and his two sons were already in Egypt, so subtract three. Pharaoh's two sons were likely not born yet, subtract two. It's possible that not all of Benjamin's sons were born before leaving as well, but this list was essentially compiled after their departure by the chronicler to depict the lineage of of Israel as it relates to their period of time as founding fathers, if you will, as a nation inside of Egypt. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 kind of makes it even more confusing, but since we quoted Acts 7 last outline, I feel like we should probably speak to this. In Acts 7, it states the 75 souls went into Egypt. So we can acknowledge that this list is not inclusive of only those that had to make that journey. And it's likely there were some kindred, as he says in verse 14 of Acts 7, that came along too that were kinfolk, but maybe not bloodfolk relation to Jacob. Nonetheless, we have the exact list in Genesis that we are required to have for what lies ahead in our studies. Uh, so you don't have to memorize it, but you'll want to keep this handy so that you're familiar with it. The number 70, as we close this outline, is very significant in the Bible. We will see it from this point forward more and more and more. And it actually comes up uh, in the book that I gave Terry tonight. When we first see the sons of Noah, 70 is in that chapter too. I think it's Genesis 10. Uh, so 70 already got some significance to the nation, to their heritage, and it will continue to do so. Um, one day after leaving Egypt, Moses, was, Moses would appoint 70 elders in Numbers 11, verse 16. There are 70 years of captivity in 2 Chronicles, verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 21. There are 70 weeks determined on the people of Israel to finish the transgression, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 70 translators of the Septuagint, translation of the Old Testament into Greek, 70 members of the Sanhedrin in the New Testament in the days of Christ, and 70 witnesses to Israel sent by Christ in Luke 10, verse 1. Psalms 90, verse 10, even relates the years and the life of a man to be 70, where it says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Uh, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Seventy has a sacred meaning in Scripture that is made up of the factors of two perfect numbers. Seven representing perfection and ten representing completeness and God's law. 
As such, it symbolizes perfect spiritual order carried out with all power. Uh, And we should probably add to that that the Lord didn't wait until there were exactly 70. He knew there'd be 70. Genesis is an amazing book. Uh, So I know we we have fun with the names here and and we uh, laugh a little bit about it, but... Again, uh, be familiar with it. If, if you really wanted to, you could come up with some real hard questions concerning who the tribes are when you look in Revelation, when you consider what Daniel says about them. Uh, don't really want any of those questions tonight either, but uh, it's good to study the Bible, and it's good to run into these things and really wrestle with them. Uh, and I pray, indeed, that you will do so. What a, what a blessing it would be that we would challenge one another with that in conversation. All right. Are there any new prayer requests specifically, Brother Ryan?